listening to Let the Bible Speak. Let the Bible Speak is the radio ministry of the Free Presbyterian Church. Stephen Pollock is the pastor of Free Presbyterian Church of Malvern, Pennsylvania. The church is located at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. Thank you for joining us today as Dr. Pollock opens the Word of God and lets the Bible speak. I'm glad you can join us again for another episode of Let the Bible Speak. After we had a short break last week from our Revelation series, we return to Revelation chapter 4 today. I trust that you have a burden again to hear what Christ would say to his church. This letter brings us many lessons and blessings to help our churches in somewhat challenging times. And so may God bless the word to your heart today. We're going to consider the company around the throne as we behold their worshipping of the triune God. And may God use his word to help us all to worship him for the honour and glory of his name. Well, please turn again your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. We're going to read from the verse number 8. And the four beasts, or the four living creatures, the word means, had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within. And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, which was, and is, and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fell, fall down before him that sat on the throne, and worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. I said last time we were together that we would return tonight to think about the activity of the company around the throne. The company defined for us, described for us in this chapter, consisting of the 24 elders, uh, that company that pictures the saints, the souls of redeemed saints, verse number four. They're sitting on these seats, the thrones, they're clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And these are the terms that we saw in chapters two and three as the promise of those who overcome who persist in their faith despite persecution and enjoy the blessings of God as Christ's promises are fulfilled. This is a picture, a way of describing the company of the redeemed from both the Old and the New Testament. And what are they doing? Well, they are praising God. That's what they're doing. Verse number 10, they fall down and worship him. And as they worship him, so they are joined and indeed led by the four beasts, the four living creatures. These beasts that we noted point us to the cherubim, point us to that angelic host, and together the saints and the angels are, are praising God. So as we look at this portion together, we are, we're certainly edified and encouraged by this sight. This is our prospect. We think of the souls of the redeemed gathered around the throne of grace. This is our prospect as those who are in Christ Jesus, that one day, one day we'll join this company. Our great expectation to have the delight. And if the Lord tarries and we pass into glory, we do so joining this company of the souls, the spirits of just men made perfect. 
Indeed, our prospect is the present delight for loved ones already in glory. Those whom we loved on this world who are in Christ, they are part of that company even now. Our, our hearts are uplifted. They're encouraged. No purgatory, no soul sleep. Those who die in the Lord go to be in the presence of the angels to worship the triune God who sits upon the throne. What a prospect this is for the people of God. And so we are edified and we're encouraged by looking at this sight. But we're also, or we should be, we should also be exhorted and instructed as we look at this sight and see this activity. Remember this heavenly host. There is no sin in this heavenly host. The spirits present, they are the spirits of just men. What are they? They're made perfect. Let's go to the text from Hebrews chapter 12. They are sinless, the angels. These are not the fallen angels. These are the angels, uh, what are often referred to as the elect angels in the word of God. Sinless. Sinless in activity. Sinless in their worship. And so by their example, we ought to be exhorted and instructed regarding our worship. If they're worshiping sinlessly, well then their worship ought to instruct how we worship. That we indeed would reflect the worship of heaven here on earth. Now, I understand that we cannot, we cannot achieve the bliss and the delight of this worshiping company. I was reading the Puritan prayer book, Valley of Vision, this morning, and I was struck by the words in tonight's message where the prayer goes, Thou art worthy of an adoration greater than my dull heart can yield. We know that God is worthy of far greater than what we can give in our worship. And we feel our inability to worship as the company in heaven, yet their activity is our expectation and our longing. So we should strive for this on earth. It should be our desire that we be like this heavenly worshiping company. And so in light of this, I want to think just for a, a time this evening about heavenly worship here on earth. What are the things that are true of this company that, that, that really could be true for us to a degree, yes, a degree marked by a dull heart, but yet still marking our worship here with the company of the saints. And there are two things I want to notice with you uh, tonight. First of all, please note the subject or the issue of objective adoration. And the company here, they are engaging in adoring their gods. Adoring in the proper sense of that word, in reverence, falling down before him. And in their worship, they are not inventive. They're responsive. They see and they hear and they express. They repeat what they see and what they hear. It is objective adoration. Objective in the sense that it is a reflection of truth. And I'll say more of that in a moment or two. So note, first of all, then, under this thought of objective adoration, note, first of all, their confession. In summary form, their confession is that God alone is God. That's their confession in this company of worship. They're, they're confessing that God alone is God. In verse number 9, those beasts, they give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever. Verse 11, and the 24 elders then join in and they say, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. 
And the sense of these words is that the beasts and the elders together say that God alone is worthy. They give him glory and they give him honor. If you like, it's the doxology that Paul gives in 1 Timothy, and now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. The, the only wise God, the only one worthy of this honor and glory. Now, when it says that they give honor and glory, because you'll note verse number 9, it says that those beasts give glory and honor. And then verse 11, that the Lord is worthy to receive glory and honor. It's not suggesting that in some way they add to God's glory, but they are giving to God what is his due, namely adoring the glory and majesty of God. They give God glory by acknowledging him as the only glorious God. They acknowledge his majesty. The word glory speaks of the majesty of God. You alone are worthy of this majesty that we ascribe to you. We say, God, you're the all-glorious God. We can say that to no one else. None other being can receive such glory. Indeed, also in the word honor, there is the thought of esteem and precious. And we honor God as we acknowledge him to be the, the most glorious God, worthy of the highest esteem and the one who is precious more than anything else. It's loving God above all things. Loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Loving God above all creation. Loving God in a way that is, he alone is worthy of. He true, true worship on earth as in heaven is founded upon the most simple confession of faith. True worship is founded upon the reality that God alone is the one true and living God, the only one worthy of all the honor and all the praise and all the glory. And there is a God who is infinitely great and infinitely glorious. You, you never worship God unless you believe that. We, we can't please God unless we believe that he is. We, we can't please God and worship unless we believe that he is. And so it causes us to go back to the very foundation every time we come to worship God privately or publicly and we begin to, to lift our minds to God. We must rehearse in our minds, you are the one true and living God. There is none like you. You're worthy of all the praise and glory and no one else is worthy of such praise. That's the foundation of true worship. And when that foundation is absent, it's not worship. Whatever you call it, it's not the worship that pleases the Lord. And so we must begin with awe and reverence. Well, we've got to begin with the foundation of awe and reverence. And here this, this must have an impact. And we think of our public worship in the house of God here, and it must impact other churches also as to how they consider public worship. You see, there is a conviction in the minds of many that the grace of God leads us into relationship with God that is familiar. And though they take the concept of Abba, Father, and they say, well, here you see, adoption and sonship brings us into a familiar relationship with God. But when you see heaven, you see those who have known grace in a manner that we have not yet known, and they do not come in an approach that is casual or familiar. They come in awe and in reverence. Those enjoying grace and glory, they confess that God is all glorious, 
all majestic, all holy. They come with humility and reverence, these attitudes that flow from their confession. You see, believing that grace allows for worship to be casual and familiar is wrong. Grace allows us to have boldness and confidence as we worship God. It does not give us the right to come without honoring him in the way that he alone is due. Coming to one who is majestic and holy, one who is worthy of our reverence and all of our praise. This adoration of God is in turn performed as we report truths about God. So the foundation I'm saying is this confession. What about the content of their praise? Yes, the confession is the foundation of praise, but the content of praise is also given to us here in this chapter. It is objective. I'm using the term objective as opposed to subjective. Objective refers to things, facts that are real and that are true. And so you're not discussing how you're feeling about those facts. Subjective describes how you engage with some of those things. But here you're simply repeating factual things are true regarding God without at this point expressing the subjective. Well, we'll get there. But worship is, again, first and foremost, objective. It praises God. It glorifies God by reporting his attributes. I was thinking of Psalm 19 this morning. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmaments show this handiwork. And those you get the sense that the heavens describing creation describe, they declare the glory of God by revealing God's attributes. Creation shows the attributes of God in his wisdom and in his power. If they declare the glory of God, then we in turn also declare the glory of God, not by being inventive, but by reporting those attributes that are true of God's. We've been given the gift of, of speech. We've given them the gift of verbal communication whereby we can use words to communicate things about God. We can declare his attributes, his being, and his works. Note those that are declared here. First of all, you see God is holy. That's there, verse number eight. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. God's holiness is the only attribute that has given this threefold repetition emphasizing the, the dignity and the honor of God's holiness, a holiness that, that really undergirds all of his attributes. His love is holy. His wrath is holy. His goodness is holy. His long-suffering is holy. There's a sense in which God is holy in all that he is. Holy, holy, holy. Yes, in a sense, we are holy as the saints of God. The word saints speaks of holy ones. Angels are holy in a sense, but the holiness of man or angel is derived from God. God's holiness is his essential property. He himself is holy. We're holy because we're set apart by God. God has his own unique supreme set-apartness, if you like. He is supremely set apart. He is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods. He is like thee glorious in holiness. God is distinct from his creation. Not distant, but distinct. We don't believe in deism, the idea of God simply starting the world and then standing back from creation at distance. We believe God is intimately acquainted and involved with this creation. He is not distant, but he is distinct. We don't believe in pantheism. We don't believe that God is in creation. 
God is distinct from creation. Again, one of those important things that children, young people can understand is that, there's a, that there is a distinction between the creator and the creature. God alone is the creator. And as such, he is holiness personified in his purity, in his integrity. Yes, in his beauty, we worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. He's too pure to behold iniquity. He can say to David, I have sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David. There's, there's, no, there's no lack of integrity with God. His, his holiness is marked by such integrity that his, his word can rest on his holiness and never fail to come to pass. God's holiness is so beautiful because there's nothing to mar God's holiness, nothing to blemish it in some fashion. You know, we, we have things that look beautiful, but yet they're often marred in some form or other. But there's nothing to mar God's holiness. He is supremely, gloriously holy. He is eternal, verse number 8, which was and is and is to come. They record this. They report this in their worship. They declare God is the uncreated being. Anything that is created is not truly eternal. We may possess eternality going forward, but we do not possess eternality going backwards. God alone is the one which was and is and is to come. It is the definition of one who is uncreated. Now, whilst that may blow your mind, the minute you deny that truth, you cease to worship God. You cannot worship God without understanding and declaring that he alone is the eternal God, eternal in the truest sense. And as the eternal God, he is altogether independent, self-sufficient, self-sustaining, invulnerable. It can say of God that he is to come. Nothing, no one can end the being of God. That's why we can ascribe his absolute sovereignty, his invulnerability. He sits in the throne and none can stay his hand. We see all these things in this worship occasion. He is the God who is holy, eternal. He is the sovereign God. They are worthy, verse number 11, to receive glory and honor and power. And what do they say? For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created and it's interesting, the people of God, they are the ones who say that God is worthy to receive glory and honor and power, for they are those who have confessed his kingship in their lives, the heavenly host. They're not redeemed, but there are those who are redeemed who've come from Satan's kingdom into the kingdom of God. They say, thou art worthy of power, worthy of dominion, thou art the glorious God. And it's because of your glorious sovereignty as the creator He's the able God, omnipotent, for thou hast created all things. And these are the things that are true about God. Oh, I heard all this before. Same old, same old. These things are profoundly true. And again, when we fail to understand and confess these things, we fail to worship God. You never, ever get beyond the fact that God made you. That God created all things. You never get beyond that fact. In your worship of God, he is the sovereign as creator and over creation. For thy pleasure they are and were created. He was willing to make this world. This world is for God. That if pleasure there speaks of his will. 
All things were made according to the will of God. Little wonder the heavenly company worship God. Certainly this exhorts us and encourages us and instructs us in our own worship. Our worship must, must exalt the being of God. It must detail who God is and what he has done. We will see the place for subjective response. But one of the features of this selfish age is that tragically the people of God often enjoy those hymns that are about what they've experienced more than those hymns that are about who God is. We easily engage in the experiential hymns. We can, we can put ourselves into those hymns and they, they certainly thrill our souls, and they should do. But subjective worship must only come in light of the objective truth of who God is. And in any given Lord's Day, we must, and I must be very careful that I ensure that we sing those hymns that exalt the being of God, who He is and what He has done. That is true worship. And as such, worship must be true in those statements. It must be true, and unless that, it is our obligation to study God's revelation of Himself, to be in the Word, to be attentive to the Word, to learn more and more. This is my God. And then you compare what the Word says about God with what you say in prayer and in praise. You make sure your worship in prayer and praise is a reflection of what God says. We must not be inventive. We must never go, I like the thing of God this way. Don't ever do that. You must think of God only as he's revealed himself because you dare not fall into the error of speaking untrue things about the true God. You've got to make sure you understand the word of God, that you're in the word of God. And more and more and more, you're saying, who is my God? What is he like and what has he done? It's a rebuke to so much of modern worship that has become so shallow and familiar and tragically at times entirely inaccurate regarding our God. Got to watch and guard the heavenly host that gives us an exhortation regarding our worship of our God. But secondly, and very briefly, having, having noted objective adoration, we note in the second place this matter of subjective appreciation. I'm not neglecting the subjective, the, the aspect of, well, how do we relate to this God? Well, in the Psalter and in heaven, we see the company relate their experience to God's being. In the Psalter, there's, there's all the eyes and the mys. Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all his benefits, who forgiveth all thine iniquities. There is the subject of entering into the person of God, the being of God. And so the host, they give thanks to God, don't they? Verse 9, when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks. Thanks is a reflection of things received. Even the angelic host understand that their being comes from God. They recognize that all that they are comes from God. And we join in that company. We, we give thanks to God because in him we live and move and have our being. And we, we confess that in our worship. We understand that we, we live according to the power of God. He upholds our very breath. And we praise God for that. God alone is independent who was and is and is to come. He's independent, self-sufficient, but we are absolutely dependent on the power of God for every breath, every part of our being, and we should acknowledge that in our praise. So we give thanks. 
And the redeemed company are also said to cast their crowns before the throne. Verse number 10. These crowns are the victor's crowns. And the crown that is given to those who overcome. A crown that Paul describes. I fought a good fight, finished my course, kept the faith. There's a crown of righteousness laid up for me. Oh yes, the Lord, the righteous judge, gives to me at that day, and not to me only, but also unto them that love his appearing. The giving, the giving of this crown. The crown comes from God. Ramsey, the commentator, says this. These elders cast their crowns before the throne in acknowledgement that these crowns were from God, his free and undeserved gift. The redeemed are never tired of ascribing all their distinctions to free and sovereign grace. And so they have these gifts, the crowns. And what are the crowns for? They're to give glory back to God. And thus they cast the crowns to God because they acknowledge that every gift they receive is given to them that they will give glory to God. You see how that goes back into this life? You're not your own. You're bought with a price. Everything you have, you have in the grace of God. And what you do with it, you're to give it back to God. It's not, it's not for your, your, your own benefit in the, in the strictest sense. It is to bring more glory back to God. You are saved that you would glorify God. You're not your own. You're bought, you're bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your soul and your body, which are God's. We give all our worship back to the Lord. And so in our worship, we do. We, we show our appreciation of God's grace. We do. Worship considers what grace has done. We, we confess God. There's subjective songs, but they're in light of God's objective reality. But there is a, an aspect where worship confesses and acknowledges all that God has done for me. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. There's a place for us to give glory back to God. And of course, such worship then leads to consecration. That all that God has given to us, we give back to God for his glory, for the honor and esteem of his name. You want to be part of this company one day? Well, do you want to be like them today? You say, I want to go to heaven someday. But have you any desire to be like this host today? To know God, to worship God, to honor God and to live your lives falling down before him and confessing that he alone is worthy of your very life. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of Let the Bible Speak from Malvern Free Presbyterian Church. If you'd like more information about the gospel or the church, please call 610-993-3170 or email malvernfpc at yahoo.com. We extend an invitation to all to join us as we worship the Lord each week. You will be made very welcome. The church is situated at 80 Mallon Road, Malvern, Pennsylvania, at the junction of 401 and Mallon Road. We meet for worship on the Lord's Day at 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. A Bible study and prayer meeting is also held on Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. We preach Christ crucified.